Story Six of Captures by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story Six Blackmail. Part One The affectionate, if rather mocking, friend who had said of Charles Granter, He isn't a man, he's an edifice, seemed justified to the thin dark man following him down Oakley Street, Chelsea, that early October afternoon. From the square foundations of his feet, to his square fair beard, and the top of his head, under a square black bowler, he looked solid as granite, indestructible, too big to be taken by the board, only fit to be submarined. And the man dodging in his wake, right down to the embankment, ran up once or twice under his counter, and fell behind again, as if appalled by the vessel's size and unconsciousness. Considering the heat of the past summer, the plane trees were still very green, and few of their twittering leaves had dropped or turned yellow, just enough to confirm the glamorous melancholy of early fall. Granter, though he lived with his wife in some mansion close by, went out of his way to pass under those trees and look at the river. This sign of weakness, perhaps, determined the shadowy man to dodge up again and become stationary close behind. Ravaged and streaked, as if he had lived submerged, he stood carefully noting with his darting dark eyes that they were quite alone, then swallowing violently so that the strings of his lean neck writhed, he moved stealthily up beside Granter and said in a hurried hoarse voice, "'Beg pardon, mister.' Ten pound, and I'll say nothing. The face which Granter turned toward that surprising utterance was a good illustration of the saying, Things are not what they seem. Above that big building of a body it quivered, ridiculously alive and complex, as of a man full of nerves, humors, sarcasms, and a deep continuous chinking sound arose, of Charles Granter jingling coins in his trousers' pocket. The quiver settled into raised eyebrows, into crow's feet, running out onto the broad cheekbones, into a sarcastic smile, drooping the corners of the lips between moustache and beard. He said in his rather high voice, "'What's the matter with you, my friend?' "'There's the lot the matter with me, mister. Down and out I am. I know where you live. I know your lady. But ten pound and I'll say nothing.' "'About what?' about your visitin' that gal where you've just come from. Ten pound. It's cheap. I'm a man of me word. With lips still sarcastically drooped, Granter made a little derisive sound. Blackmail by George. Governor, I'm desperate. I mean to have that ten pound. You give it me here at six o'clock this evening, if you haven't got it on you. His eyes flared suddenly in his hungry face. But no tricks. I ain't killed Huns for nothing. Granter surveyed him for a moment, then turned his back and looked at the water. Well, you've got two hours to get it in. Six o'clock, mister. Just here. And no tricks, I warn you. The hoarse voice ceased. The sound of footsteps died away. Granter was alone. The smile still clung to his lips, but he was not amused. He was annoyed with the measured indignation of a big man highly civilized and innocent. Where had this ruffian sprung from? To be spied on, without knowing it, like this. His ears grew red. 
The damned scoundrel! The thing was too absurd to pay attention to. But instantly, his highly sophisticated consciousness began to pay it attention. How many visits had he made to this distressed flower-girl? Three? And all because he didn't like handing over the case to that society which always found out the worst. They said private charity was dangerous. Apparently it was. Blackmail. A consideration came, perching like a crow on the branches of his mind. Why hadn't he mentioned the flower-girl to his wife, and made her do the visiting? Why? Because Olga would have said the girl was a fraud. And perhaps she was. A put-up job. Would the scoundrel have ventured on this threat at all, if the girl were not behind him? She might support him with lies. His wife might believe them. She, she had such a vein of cynicism. How sordid! How domestically unpleasant! Granter felt quite sick. Every decent human value seemed suddenly in question. And a second crow came croaking. Could one leave a scoundrel like this to play his tricks with impunity? Oughtn't one to go to the police? He stood extraordinarily still. A dappled leaf dropped from a plane tree and lodged on his bowler hat. At the other end of him, a little dog mistook him for a lamp-post. This was no joke. For a man with a reputation for humanity, integrity and common sense, no joke at all. A police court meant the prosecution of a fellow creature, getting him perhaps a year's imprisonment, when one had always felt that punishment practically never fitted crime. Staring at the river, he seemed to see cruelty hovering over himself, his wife, society, the flower-girl, even over that scoundrel, naked cruelty waiting to pounce on one or all. Whichever way one turned, the thing was dirty, cruel. No wonder blackmail was accounted such a heinous crime. No other human act was so cold-blooded, spider-like, and slimy. None plunged so deadly a dagger into the bowels of compassion, so eviscerated humanity, so murdered faith. And it would have been even worse if his conscience had not been clear. But was it so extremely clear? Would he have taken the trouble to go to that flower-girl's dwelling, not once, but three times, unless she had been attractive, unless her dark brown eyes had been pretty, and her common voice so soft? Would he have visited the blousy old flower-woman at that other corner, in circumstances, no doubt, just as strenuous? Honestly, no. Still, if he did like a pretty face, he was not vicious, he was fastidious and detested subterfuge. But then Olga was so cynical. She would certainly ask him why he hadn't visited the old flower-woman as well, and the lame man who sold matches, and all the other stray unfortunates of the neighborhood. Well, there it was, and a bold course always the best. The bold course. Which was it? To go to the police? To his wife? To that girl? and find out if she were in this ramp? To wait till six o'clock, meet the ruffian, and shake the teeth out of him? Granter could not decide. All seemed equally bold, would do equally well. And a fifth course presented itself, which seemed even bolder. Ignore the thing! The tide had just turned, and the full waters below him were very still, of a sunlit soft grey colour. 
this stillness of the river restored to charles granter something of the impersonal mood in which he had crossed the embankment to look at it here by the mother stream of this great town was he tall strong well-fed and if not rich quite comfortable and here too were hundreds of thousands like that needy flower-girl and this shadowy scoundrel skating on the edge of destitution and here was this water to him a source of aesthetic enjoyment to them a possible last refuge the girl had talked of it beggar's patter perhaps like the blackmailer's words i'm desperate i'm down and out one wanted to be just if he had known all about them but he knew nothing can't believe she's such an ungrateful little wretch he thought i'll go back and see her he retraced his way up oakley street to the mews which she inhabited and ascended a stairway scented with petrol through the open doorway he could see her baby of doubtful authorship seated in an empty flower basket a yellow baby who stared up at him with the placidity of one recently fed that stare seemed to grant her to be saying you look out that you're not taken for my author have you got an alibi old man and almost unconsciously he began to calculate where he had been about fourteen or fifteen months ago not in london thank goodness in brittany with his wife all that july august and september jingling his money he contemplated the baby it seemed more but it might be only four months old the baby opened a toothless mouth gah it said and stretched out a tiny hand granter ceased to jingle the coins and gazed round the room the first time he came a month ago to test her street corner story its condition had been deplorable his theory that people were never better than their environments had prompted the second visit and that of this afternoon he had wanted to know that he was not throwing away his money and there certainly was some appearance of comfort now in a room so small that he and the baby and a bed almost filled it but he felt a fool for ever having come there even with those best intentions which were the devil and turning to go he saw the girl herself ascending the stairs a paper bag in her hand an evident bull's-eye in her mouth for a scent of peppermint preceded her surely her cheekbones were higher than he had thought her eyebrows more oblique a gypsy look her eyes dark and lustrous as a hound puppy's smiled at him and he said in his rather high voice i came back to ask you something yes sir do you know a dark man with a thin face and a slight squint who's been in the army what's his name sir i don't know but he followed me from here and tried to blackmail me on the embankment you know what blackmail is no sir feline swift furtive she had passed him and taken up her baby slanting her dark glance at him from behind it granter experienced a very queer sensation really it was as if though he disliked poetic emphasis as if he had suddenly seen something pre-civilized pre-human snake-like cat-like monkey-like too in those dark sliding eyes and that yellow baby she was in it or if not in it she knew of it a dangerous game that he said tell him for his own good he had better drop it 
and, while he went very square downstairs, he thought, this is one of the finest opportunities you ever had for getting to the bottom of human nature, and you're running away from it. So strongly did this thought obsess him, that he halted in two minds outside. A chauffeur, who was cleaning his car, looked at him curiously. Charles Granter moved away. Part Two When he reached the little drawing-room of their flat, his wife was making tea. She was rather short, with a good figure, and brown eyes in a flattish face, powdered and by no means unattractive. She had Slav blood in her, Polish, and Granter never now confided to her the finer shades of his thoughts and conduct, because she had long made him feel himself her superior in moral sensibility. He had no wish to feel superior. It was often very awkward, but he could not help it. In view of this attempted blackmail, more than awkward. It was extraordinarily unpleasant to fall from a pedestal on which he did not wish to be. He sat down, very large, in a lacquered chair with black cushions, spoke of the leaves turning, saw her look at him and smile, and felt that she knew he was disturbed. "'Do you ever wonder,' he said, tinkling his teaspoon, "'about the lives that other people live?' "'What sort of people, Charles?' "'Oh, not our sort. Match-sellers, don't you know. Flower-sellers, people down and out?' "'No, I don't think I do.' If only he could tell her of this monstrous incident without slipping from his pedestal. "'It interests me enormously. There are such queer depths to reach, don't you know?' Her smile seemed to answer, "'You don't reach the depths in me.' And it was true. She was very Slav, with the warm gleam in her eyes and the opaque powdered skin of her comely face. An enigma flatly an enigma. There were deep waters below the pedestal, like, like Philae, with columns still standing in the middle of the Nile Dam. Absurd thought! I've often wondered, he said, how I should feel if I were down and out. You're too large, Charles, and too dignified, my dear. You'd be on the civil list before you could turn around. Granter rose from the lacquered chair, jingling his coins. The most vivid pictures at that moment were, like a film, unrolled before his mind, of the grey sunlit river, and that accosting blackguard, with his twisted murky face and lips, uttering hoarse sounds, of the yellow baby, and the girl's gypsy-dark glance from behind it, of a police court, and himself standing there and letting the whole cartload of the law fall on them. He said suddenly, I was blackmailed this afternoon on the embankment. She did not answer, and, turning with irritation, he saw that her fingers were in her ears. I do wish you wouldn't jingle your money so, she said. Confound it, she had not heard him. I've had an adventure, he began again. You know the flower girl who stands at that corner in Tite Street? Yes, a gypsy baggage. Hmm, well... I bought a flower from her one day, and she told me such a pathetic story that I went to see her den to see if it was true. It seemed to be, so I gave her some money, don't you know. Then I thought I'd better see how she was spending it, so I went to see her again, don't you know. A faint, oh, Charles, caused him to hurry on. And what do you think, 
A blackguard followed me today and tried to blackmail me for ten pounds on the embankment. A sound brought his face round to attention. His wife was lying back on the cushions of her chair in paroxysms of soft laughter. It was clear to Granter then that what he had really been afraid of was just this. His wife would laugh at him, laugh at him slipping from the pedestal. Yes, it was that he had dreaded, not any disbelief in his fidelity. Somehow he felt too large to be laughed at. He was too large. Nature had set a size beyond which husbands... I don't see what there is to laugh at, he said frigidly. There's no more odious crime than blackmail. His wife was silent. Tears were trickling down her cheeks. Did you give it to him? she said in a strangled voice. Of course not. What was he threatening? To tell you. But what? His beastly interpretation of my harmless visits. The tears had made runlets in her powder, and he added viciously, He doesn't know you, of course. His wife dabbed her eyes, and a scent of geranium arose. It seems to me, said Granter, that you'd be even more amused if there were something in it. Oh, no, Charles, but perhaps there is. Granter looked at her fixedly. I'm sorry to disappoint you, there is not. He saw her cover her lips with that rag of handkerchief, and abruptly left the room. He went into his study, and sat down before the fire. So it was funny to be a faithful husband? And suddenly he thought, If my wife can treat this as a joke, what, what about herself? A nasty thought, an unconscionable thought. Really, it was as though that blackmailing scoundrel had dirtied human nature till it seemed to function only from low motives. A church clock chimed. Six already. The ruffian would be back there, on the embankment, waiting for his ten pounds. Granter rose. His duty was to go out and hand him over to the police. No, he thought viciously. Let him come here. I'd very much like him to come here. I'd teach him. But a sort of shame beset him. Like most very big men, he was quite unaccustomed to violence, had never struck a violent blow in his life, not even in his school days, had never had occasion to. He went across to the window. From there he could just see the embankment parapet through the trees in the failing light, and presently, sure enough, he made out the fellow's figure, slinking up and down like a hungry dog. He stood watching, jingling his money, nervous, sarcastic, angry, very interested. What would the rascal do now? Would he beard this great block of flats? And was the girl down there too, the girl with her yellow baby? He saw the slinking figure cross from the far side and vanish under the loom of the mansions. In that interesting moment, Granter burst through the bottom of one of his trousers' pockets. Several coins jingled onto the floor and rolled away. He was still looking for the last when he heard the doorbell ring. He had never really believed the ruffian would come up. Straightening himself abruptly, he went out into the hall. Service was performed by the mansion's staff, so there was no one in the flat but himself and his wife. The bell rang again, and she too appeared. This is my embankment friend, no doubt, who amuses you so much. I should like you to see him, he said grimly. 
he noted a quizzical apology on her face and opened the hall door yes there stood the man by electric light in upholstered surroundings more down and out than ever a bad lot but a miserable poor wretch with his broken boots his thin twisted twitching face his pinched shabby figure only his hungry eyes looked dangerous come in said granter you want to see my wife i think the man recoiled i don't want to see her he muttered unless you force me to give us five pound governor and i won't worry you again i don't want to cause trouble between man and wife come in repeated granter she's expecting you the man stood silently passing a pale tongue over a pale upper lip as though conjuring some new resolution from his embarrassment now see here mister he said suddenly you'll regret it if i come in you will straight i shall regret it if you don't you're a very interesting fellow and an awful scoundrel well who made me one the man burst out you answer me that are you coming in yes i am he came and granter shut the door behind him it was like inviting a snake or a mad dog into one's parlour but the memory of having been laughed at was so fresh within him that he rather welcomed the sensation now he said have the kindness and opened the drawing-room door the man slunk in blinking in the stronger light granter went towards his wife who was standing before the fire this gentleman has an important communication to make to you it seems the expression of her face struck him as peculiar surely she was not frightened and he experienced a kind of pleasure in seeing them both look so exquisitely uncomfortable well he said ironically perhaps you'd like me not to listen and going back to the door he stood leaning against it with his hands up to his ears he saw the fellow give a furtive look and go nearer to her his lips moved rapidly hers answered and he thought what on earth am i covering my ears for he took his hands away and the man turned round i'm going now mister a little mistake sorry to have troubled you his wife turned to the fire again and with a puzzled feeling granter opened the door as the fellow passed he took him by the arm twisted him round into the study and locking the door put the key into his pocket now then he said you precious scoundrel the man shifted on his broken boots don't you hit me governor i got a knife here i'm not going to hit you i'm going to hand you over to the police the man's eyes roved looking for a way of escape then rested as if fascinated on the glowing hearth what's ten pounds he said suddenly you'd never a missed it granter smiled you don't seem to realize my friend that blackmail is the most devilish crime a man can commit and he crossed over to the telephone the man's eyes dark restless violent and yet hungry began to shift up and down the building of a man before him no he said suddenly with a sort of pathos don't do that governor the look of his eyes or the tone of his voice affected granter but if i don't he said slowly you'll be blackmailing the next person you meet you're as dangerous as a viper 
The man's lips quivered, he covered them with his hand, and said from behind it, "'I'm a man like yourself. I'm down and out. That's all. Look at me.' Granter's glance dwelt on the trembling hand. "'Yes, but you fellows destroy all belief in human nature,' he said vehemently. "'See here, governor. You try living like me. You try it. My God! You try my life these last six months, cadgin and crawlin' for a job.' He made a deep sound. "'A man who's done his bit, too. What life is it? A stinkin' life. Not fit for a dog, let alone a human bein'. And when he see a great big chap like you, beggin' your pardon, mister, well-fed, with everything to his, and it was regular askin' for it. It come over me, it did.' "'No, no,' said Granter grimly. "'That won't do. It couldn't have been sudden. You calculated. You concocted this. Blackmail is sheer filthy cold-blooded blackguardism. You don't care two straws whom you hurt, whose lives you wreck, what faiths you destroy. And he put his hand on the receiver. The man squirmed. Steady on, governor. I've got to find food. I've got to find clothes. I can't live on air. I can't go naked. Granter stood motionless while the man's voice continued to travel to him across the cosy room. "'Give us a chance, Governor. Ah, give us a chance. You can't understand my temptations. Don't have the police to me. I won't do this again. Give you me word. So help me. I've got it in the neck. Let me go, Governor.' In Granter, motionless as the flats he lived in, a heavy struggle was in progress, not between duty and pity, but between revengeful anger and a sort of horror at using the strength of prosperity against so broken a wretch. "'Let me go, mister,' came the hoarse voice again. "'Be a sport.' Granter dropped the receiver and unlocked the door. "'All right, you can go.' The man crossed swiftly. "'Christ,' he said, "'good luck, and as to the lady, I take it back. I never see her.' It's all me eye. He was across the hall and gone before Granter could decide what to say. The scurrying shuffle of his footsteps down the stairs died away. And as to the lady, I take it back. I never see her. It's all me eye. Good God. The scoundrel, having failed with him, had been trying to blackmail his wife, his wife, who had laughed at his fidelity, his wife, who had looked frightened all me eye. Her face started up before Granter, scared under its powder, with a mask drawn over it. And he had let that scoundrel go. But why scared? Blackmail, of all poisonous human actions, why scared? What now? End of Story 6